morning to Nehemiah chapter 10. And in just a moment, I'll begin reading the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9. Some translations, interestingly enough, make the last verse of Nehemiah, what I will read, Nehemiah 9.38, the very first verse of Nehemiah uh, chapter 10, but in the New American Standard Version, it's chapter 9, verse 38. Now what we do in this place on the Lord's Day is very, very important. We gather together as the people of God to worship the Son of God. We gather together to express to God our, our thoughts about Him. We sing songs saturated in gospel truth. And as we sing and express our love and devotion to God, we're actually encouraging and edifying those around us. They, they hear our voices, and as we're singing, it's, it's strengthening them, and the Spirit of God uses it to build their faith as all of us join our voices together to worship the Son of God. And then we open His Word. He's given us a written Word. Given us a word that we can read and we can study and we can share and talk about. What we do here is so very, very important. But when we leave this place, what we do on the ride home, how we engage with our spouse and our children, co-workers, family members, friends, it's equally important. In, in some ways, maybe even more important. More important in this sense, because how we interact with our family, how we interact with friends, co-workers, how we work our job, it tells what we really believe. What we really believe is lived out in a fallen world. And as we've been studying Nehemiah, it's such a fantastic book. We discover people in chapter 8 who cry out to Nehemiah, bring out the book. And they bring out the book, the law of God, and Ezra the priest begins to read it to the people. And the people begin to, to understand and to relish the reading of God's word. And then in, in chapter 9, they begin to confess their sin. They see how their lives have to measure up to God's standards, and so they confess their sin. But we might think that's the end of the story. That's where, that's where it ends, the reading of the book, the confession of sin. But it's after the benediction. After the benediction, when everybody goes home, that it really is determined, do they really believe what they've read, what they've sung, what they've said? Because that's where we discover that the Christian life, at least the, the life honoring and glorifying to God, is most clearly exemplified. What I want to talk with you about this morning is from Nehemiah 9, 38 through the end of chapter 10, after the benediction. What goes on after the benediction that is really important and significant in our, in our lives? And I think it's very interesting how... Nehemiah lays it out for us. I'm going to begin in chapter 9, verse 38, and then I'd like to go all the way over to chapter 10, verse 28, and continue reading. So if you'll follow along as I begin in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, depending upon your translation, maybe chapter 10, verse 1. Now because of all of this, we are making an agreement in writing. 
And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding, are joining their kinsmen, their nobles, and all are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, of God our Lord, and his ordinances and statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our, our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath for a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of the shekel for the service of the house of God. If you have a pen, I'd like you to do me a favor. Underline that phrase, the house of God. Underline every reference to it from here to the end of the chapter. You'll see nine of them, including this one. For the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, for the appointed times, for the holy things and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so they may bring it to the house of our God according to our Father's households at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, it is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit, of all the fruit of every tree, to the house of the Lord annually. And bring to the house of God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds and flocks, as, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priest, and the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus we will not neglect the house of our What's amazing about the Word of God is that the Word of God that we just read was written over 400 years before Jesus was born. It was written by a real person, the man in the 
such a monumental figure in the Old Testament, such a courageous and heroic individual. And as we study Nehemiah 1 through Nehemiah 9, our appreciation and admiration of this man has only grown. But he didn't do it alone. He didn't rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem by himself. He didn't set the gates in place by himself. He didn't teach and read to the people by himself. It was a, an entire community of people devoted to God and, and committed to restoring their relationship with God, to the, to the God of heaven, the God that sits on heaven's throne. And so I want us to think this morning about after the benediction, after they closed the book of the law, after they had said their prayers, after they had repented of their sins, and, and they went to their homes, what was it that they were to do? Well, there are three things I want you to notice this morning from this passage. The first one is this. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. Have you ever thought about the fact that many of the troubles that you're having in life are the result of God's discipline on your life? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Notice again with me in verse 38. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. What does he mean when he says, now because of all this? They've connected the dots. they put some things together. They've begun to understand what happened to the northern kingdom when the Assyrians ransacked it and took them off into captivity. What happened to the southern kingdom when it was, when it was demolished by the Babylonians and they were taken off into captivity wasn't just by happenstance. It was an act of God. It was the plan of God. It was the discipline of God. God's people thought they could sin with impunity. God's people thought that because God didn't immediately respond to their sin, that they could get away with their sin. That, that God, was, God was rather disinterested in the day-to-day -day living. As long as the sacrifices were being made and the tithes were being paid, God was disinterested in how they engaged with one another in the home, how a husband and wife interacted with one another. They thought God was a hands-off kind of God. They, they began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. They connected the dots. Now, because of all this, look back in verse 30 with me. Chapter 9 and verse 30. However, you have bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet, they would not give the ear. Therefore you gave them into the land, or into the hand of all the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them, or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us 
our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. Look with me in verse 33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Drop down to verse 36. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and of its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress now because of all this. Paul put it this way, you reap what you sow. The devastation, the destruction, was an act of divine chastisement, an act of divine punishment. The author of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he disciplined them. He disciplined them severely. He sent them prophets to warn them. He sent them spokesmen who would, who would declare to the people, you're in danger. Beware of transgressing the word of God. And yet they continued to sin. They continued to drift from God. It wasn't in one fell swoop. It wasn't in one gigantic act. It was a little bit at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there. They began to plant little seeds of disobedience. But little seeds of disobedience become trees, and then trees become forests, and you become very comfortable living among the forest. Think of it this way, you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, you reap more than you sow. That was the word of the prophets, but they turned a deaf ear to the prophets. Because God loved them, God chastened them. He chastened them severely by sending the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity. Because he wanted to purify for himself a people for his own possession. But he's a gracious God, a compassionate God, a forgiving God. And as his punishment reached its full enactment, he began to allow some of them to return. First under Zerubbabel, then under Ezra, then under Nehemiah. And he took a small cadre of people and he, and he energized them to perform a monumental task. The rebuilding of the walls, the establishing of the gates, the, the reinstitution of appropriate sacrificial worship. God disciplines those he loves. It's good to stop when life is very hard and to ask, are you punishing me for my sin? Now we need to be clear about this, that every hardship in 
punished for sin because we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, very godly people die of cancer. In a, fair, in a fallen world, very godly people get hit by drunk drivers. And people die. And families suffer monumental loss. Paul, though, wants to remind us that sometimes our sickness is the result of divine chastisement. If you have time, we can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, Do you not realize that some of you sleep and others are sick? And the reason is because they are at odds with one another in the body of Christ. They, they, were, they, were, they had bad attitudes. They were struggling in their relationships with one another, and, and God didn't want that. God wouldn't allow that. So he says, Some of you sleep. Some of you are sick because of your refusal to love one another. The disciples of Jesus, however, thought that all sickness, all, all catastrophe was the result of divine punishment. In John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples come upon a man born blind. And the disciples have bought into this idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. They've been to Joel Osteen conferences. And so here they are, they say, who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents, but he's been born blind because for him to be born blind, somebody has sinned. They don't mean living in a sinful world. They mean actual personal sin. This man is blind because of actual personal sin. Maybe it was his sin, and that's why he was born blind. But think about it. When would he have, when would he have sinned? Well, the rabbis taught that a baby in the mother's womb could transgress the law of God. Think, well, how could anybody be so stupid as to think that? Well, they had to have a reason for babies being born with deformities or with blindness or missing a limb. So it must be that in some way, unbeknownst to, unbeknownst to us, the baby can sit while in the mother's womb. Or mom and dad are, are egregious sinners. And the, their child is suffering the consequences of their sin. And Jesus said, this is lunacy in the, in the country place. This is stupid. This is stupid thinking. Neither this man sinned nor his parents. Not all sickness, not all hardship, not all struggles, not all disappointments are the result of personal sin, either the sin of others or our own sin. But sometimes, sometimes God puts roadblocks up. Sometimes God lets things come crumbling down because of our sin. And the people of Nehemiah's day connected the dots. So what do you, what do, you do when the walls start crumbling? It doesn't hurt just to take a little bit of time and, and to take stock. You don't have to take a microscope and a, and a giant flashlight. The Spirit of God is more than able of bringing to our minds and hearts our sin. So it's not like getting in a, in a, in a room and closing everybody out and, and going over with a magnifying glass. He is capable of bringing to our hearts and minds and speaking words to us sometimes from others about what it is that's God is disciplining us for. 
God disciplines those he loves. And the good thing is, as you read these verses, he's also gracious. He's forgiving. He's forbearing. He's willing to restore us. And that's exactly what he did to the people in Nehemiah's day. He'll do the same thing for you and for me. The second thing I want you to notice is that new renewal begins with those in positions of leadership. This is true in the church and in the home. Notice there are 84 names listed in chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. 84 names. And the very first name is Nehemiah's name. Well, that's exactly what we would expect from Nehemiah. The very first one to sign the covenant. The very first one to step forward and agree that after the benediction, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to, I'm going to live as I ought to live as a, as a representative of the God of heaven. Nehemiah puts his name down first, and that's important. Whether it's in the church or in the home, the leaders have to lead. You know, we live in a day and time where all around us leaders are falling. Those in position, significant position, positions of leadership who are entrusted with monumental roles in Christian organizations or in churches. It seems like on a regular basis we're hearing about them failing and falling. Not just the kinds of struggles that every Christian goes through, but leaders committing sexual immorality. Leaders becoming addicted to alcohol. Leaders who have forgotten how to treat people that work with them and, and for them. And they're forced out. They've abdicated, the, they've abdicated the privilege of leading. And we hear it so often that sometimes we think, well, the, the sky is falling. But think about it for just a moment. Even if we hear about it, a person here or a person there every week, there are literally hundreds and thousands of godly men and women in significant places of leadership, some in very large, substantial churches, Others in smaller, substantial churches who are doing the right thing. They're not perfect, but they're doing the right thing. They're living for God. They're confessing their sins. They're, they're seeking to lead the people of God with integrity and, and authenticity. They're, they're seeking to treat others with grace and compassion the way that they've been treated with grace and compassion. Nehemiah's name is first, and... Though we might think the sky is falling, let me tell you, the sky is falling. God has an army of godly leaders in the church and in the home. We might think that the, the American family is, is falling apart. Well, it's true, but what about the church? In the church, we have an untold number of men and women that are doing just the right things in their home. In the home, they're, they're loving their spouse. They're sacrificing for their families. They're seeking to be the best mate, husband or wife, mom or dad they can possibly be. They're, they're godly children. They're seeking to honor their mom and dad. Now, it doesn't mean they don't sin. It doesn't mean they don't, they don't lose their temper. It doesn't mean that they don't make a miss. 
godly leaders, and Nehemiah's name heads the list right here. And then he's followed by 24 names that are priests. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, we have Nehemiah and 24 priests that, that put their name on the dotted line. In verses 9 through 13, we have 17 Levites. 17 Levites that sign their name on the dotted line. In 14 through 27, there are 44 additional names. And these are names of people that are the heads of families. These are the leaders of clans that said, you can count on me. I am going to live my life for God after the benediction. After the reading of God's word, the worship of God, and the, and the, and the benediction that is spoken, I'm going to go home and I'm going to seek to live for God. So in verses 14 through 27, 44 names are listed. And then the rest of them that didn't sign for whatever reason, maybe space or maybe time, as they stepped forward and said, you can count on us. Look at verses 28 and 29. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, Singers. Remember, I want to be a singer. The singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath. To do what? To walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. So they've made a firm commitment. They might not have picked their name, but they were saying, I'm on board with what's taking place. This is the second point that I want to make, however. Or actually, it's the, the third thought I'm wanting to make is this. There are three areas by which they make a renewed commitment. Three areas that are in the forefront of their minds, and that, has, that is marriage, worship, and money. Marriage, worship, and money. These are the three areas where... After the benediction, they're going to make sure that they're making a difference. The first one is in the sanctity of marriage. These people were making a commitment that they would not marry those who worshipped other gods. They would not marry those who had commitments that weren't focused in and around God. This doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. Marrying someone of another race has everything with doing not marrying someone of another religion. Not marrying someone who doesn't have the same commitments and the passion and the zeal for God that God wants us to have. That's the way Paul understood it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be 
Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18, Paul put it this way. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what has harmony, or what harmony has Christ with Biel? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This has monumental implications for those of you here today who are single. See, there's, there's this rationalization that goes on in our mind. You know, I can change this person. Or, you know, they started coming to church. You know, before we started dating, they didn't go to church. Now they come to church and, and they're going to hear the gospel. And, and I'm confident, I'm sure that if we get married... I just know that God is going to bring them to saving faith. And we contort the scriptures. We manipulate the scriptures. We, we, we try to convince ourselves and others that it's, that it's really all right for me to, to get seriously involved with someone that doesn't love Jesus. Now, they don't have to be perfect. Sometimes there's got to be some believable standards. And I say to people like that, have you ever looked in the mirror? You know, you're not so great looking yourself, and you don't live a perfect life either. But there's a difference between having unrealistic standards and being confident that the person that you are dating, the person that you might be moving toward a permanent lifetime commitment to, loves Jesus. Not as a means to get you because they love Jesus. The most important decision you will ever make after your commitment to Jesus is who you marry. There's no more important decision in life, not where you go to school, not the occupation that you, that you enter into. There's no more important decision in life after your decision to follow Christ than who Because you will never experience any greater pain in life than if you marry outside faith. Say, Pastor, I, I gotta be honest, I did that. I did exactly what you said a young person shouldn't do. And now I'm married to a person who they started attending church, they said all the right things, but not long after we were married, I, I, I saw very clearly that the God I love isn't the God that they truly love. What do I do? You'd be the very best spouse you could be. You love your spouse for the glory of God, even if, not, if they don't love you in the way that you deserve to be loved. You pray for them. You serve them. You minister to them. But you make it clear that the greatest love in your life is Jesus Christ. 
sanctity of marriage. That's where he began and began. The second is the sacredness of the Sabbath day. The sacredness of the Sabbath day. Look at chapter 10 and verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every day. The part that I want to focus on is the Sabbath day. Now the Jewish Sabbath is not the same thing as the Lord's day. The Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. We're gathered here on the Lord's day. But there are some very important principles and implications that we learn and what we learn from this is that there is a day that's been set aside for the worship of God and the service of His people. There's one day that's more important than every other day of the week. There's one day that stands to the forefront, over and above every other day. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day when the people of God gather together to worship the Son of God. And what you'll find is a part of Satan's strategy is to cause us to think of the Lord's Day casually. To think of the Lord's Day as just another day. That you come and you do your part, but, but the day is your day, you do as you want to do it, because you only get two days a week. You get two days, Saturday and Sunday. Those are your days. Those are the important days. And it will cause us to think of the Lord's Day in a casual manner. He will encroach on the Lord's day. I can't, I can't tell you how, how glad I am that I didn't have to make a decision when my kids were growing up about whether we were going to miss church to play ball games or not. I hope I would make the right decision. I hope I would have drawn a line in the sand and say, no, the Lord's day comes before everything else. We will not sacrifice I'm not talking about an incidental event here or there. I'm talking about a regular, habitual habit of where we sacrifice the Lord's Day so that our kids can be in a special soccer league, in a special football league, they can go to a particular track meet, where they can do all kinds of things, and we ingrain in them that the Lord's Day is a casual day. I'm glad, honestly, I've never had the money for a, for a beach house. I, I don't know how I would have done, honestly. You'll often find that the people, I'm not talking about an occasional trip on a Sunday. I'm not talking about on vacation and you're in a place you don't know and, there's a, and you don't know the churches very well and, and you just stay with your family that day and you leave them in a Bible reading and prayer. And, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a regular lifestyle where I'm choosing things to take priority over the Lord's day. God disciplined them. The scripture the Lord often uses in my mind from Psalms, Moab is my washed basin. He takes those things and he scrubs us with a bristle brush. That's what he did to the, that's what he did to the Jews. Because they thought the Lord's day was like any other day. And they treated it very casually. So he moves from the sanctity of marriage to the, to the sanctity of the Lord's day. And then finally, he talks about money. 
kingdom giving in the house of God nine times between verse 32 and verse 39. Nine times. He makes reference to the house of God. One of those is to the house of the Lord. Nine times. And he talks about various, various tithes. There's the temple tax in verses 32 and 33. There's the wood offering in verse 34. There's the first fruits in 35 through 37. There's the tithes in verses 37 through 39. Note all of this has to do with giving, sacrificing, contributing, be it the temple tax, the first fruits, or the tithes. It's saying that there, there has to be there has to be that sacrificial disposition to give to God's kingdom, to give to God's work, to give to God's house. And again, he talks about the temple tax. But the one I find very interesting is the wood offering. You know, we might not think about it, but the brazen altar, it was to keep burning 24-7. 352 days a year, every day, the fires to be burning on the brazen altar. Then there's the burnt offerings. It takes a lot of wood in a very barren land. And so they divide the people up and the people would draw lots and in particular seasons of the year this clan would be responsible for the wood and this clan during this particular season, this clan for a particular season. And you can imagine you bring that wood to the, to the temple and you, you lay it there for the priests and the Levites and you think of it as kind of inconsequential, insignificant, not very monumental, but it's pretty monumental in God's eyes. You see, often what we think of as trivial, God sees as significant. For example, you might teach a, you, you would be teaching in this hour if you were teaching in the second grade BFG. So we got some people teaching second grade BFG. I have no doubt of the parents of second graders in here today that it's not uncommon for you to thank them. Say thank you so much, write them a card, speak a good word to them about the, about the way they're contributing to the spiritual uh, growth of your children. But, you know, that's not an easy task. It's, it's much easier to get up here and sing, and it's much easier to get up here and preach if you, if you want to think, well, man, I'm really making a difference. I'm really making a, an impact. But who would have thought would? Would have mattered so much to God, but it did. And if it matters to God, that's what really matters. That's what really important. You think the temple tax, I get it. The first fruits, I get it. The tithe, I, I understand it. But the wood, who would have ever thought God knows the giving of wood? Everything we do for God's glory, although it might seem insignificant and inconsequential in the eyes of man, matters to God. Think of it this way. When you're in your right mind and right uh, disposition, you've got a good night's sleep, and if you're a parent, that's not very often. Let's say you've got a good night's sleep, and your four-year-old brings you a, a drawing. It's just a bunch of scribbles. And not even, not even in, the, in the lines very well. And what do you say? Thank you, but when you, can, when you can paint the Mona Lisa, come back, and then that, that'll, be, uh, that'll be worth my time. It's not like that at all, is it? up in your arms. You say, I love this. This is phenomenal. You could be Rembrandt in the making. I, I love what you've done. I'm going to put it up on the refrigerator with the other 695 scribbles that you give. And there you put it. And somebody comes to your house over from your BFG. Look at my, 
that when we do the little things that are overlooked by others, like the bringing of wood, out of love and devotion and honor and respect to him, think what that must mean to him. The joy we feel in the hearts as parents or grandparents over the scribbling of a child, multiply that in an infinitesimal way. And that's what it means to God when we bring the wood. Well, after the benediction, let's What's the point of it? The point of it is that this chapter has a lot to teach us about God. It teaches us a couple of things about God. First, it teaches us that God will discipline us when we stray from Him. When we treat things casually that He calls holy, He will discipline us because He loves us. And He wants to sanctify us. He wants to make us holy. He wants to conform us into the image of Jesus. So as his children, he will discipline us. But also as our Heavenly Father, he's forgiving. He's kind. He's gracious. And when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we learn about God because if you and I had been God, we'd have found a new peace. We've been put out to the degree I'm done with it. I'm sending them into exile. I'm never bringing them back. I'm finished. I'm washing my hands. I'll go to Moab. I'll go to the Amorites. I'll go to the Amalekites. I'll find somebody that appreciates me enough that they will follow my ways. But God didn't do that. He disciplined them and then he forgave them. You know, you may hear today, you don't even know that God. You're living with guilt and remorse and anguish. And you know what? You will die and bear that guilt, remorse, and anguish forever and ever if you don't know this God. But the great thing about this God is that this God has his arms open wide. He has his arms open to any and to all who will come to him through faith in Christ. I'm going to lead us in a, in a word of prayer. And maybe that you would like to come this morning as a family to the first hour for church membership. Maybe you'd like to, to come forward and, and to speak to one of, our, one of our folks about your spiritual life, whether it's salvation or a struggle that you're having. And we'd, we'd love to introduce you to someone that can pray with you and talk to you. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the relevancy of it. And we pray that your spirit will now take it, use it in our lives for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name.